Thank you for joining us for our series through the Book of Romans. This book is full of rich truths about the Christian life, and we hope that throughout our study, your identity in Christ and our call to communitas are affirmed in you each week. Let's dive into the text. Contracts can get kind of weird, can't they? Uh, you guys heard of the artist formerly known as Prince? Here's what happened a few, a few years ago. He, he had this deal with Warner Brother Records where you know, they had the rights to him for a certain amount of time, and so he just took a symbol and said, this will now be what I'm known as, and then went by the artist formerly known as Prince. And so uh, I wanted to let you guys know that because of contractual obligations, we are no longer called Vintage Grace. We are now the church formerly known as Vintage Grace, and uh, we will only be known by our logo. Some of you guys are concerned. Some of you aren't sure if I'm serious or not. Of course, no, that would be stupid, right? Like, nobody would do that because that would be a really bad contract to make, right? There's some weird things that happen when you have contractual obligations, right? Here's another one. You guys heard of the little band uh, called Blink-182? You've heard of them? Okay, they had a contractual obligation to produce an album by the end of the year one year. And so they got to the end, and you know what? They had nothing. So what did they do? They made the world's worst Christmas album, okay? So this year, 2023 Christmas Eve service at the church formerly known as Vintage Grace. Get ready for some absolute bangers to be dropping, okay? <clears throat> Don't look up that album. Okay, here's another one. In 2007, Apple had a contractual obligation with AT&T, right? They made a deal where they had exclusive rights to the iPhone. Um, can somebody say Monopoly, okay? We broke that one up. Thank you, America. And then the last one is this. This one really got me. Uh, have you guys heard <clears throat> of the McLean Deluxe? <laughs> oh, no. Now, some of you were alive for this. Some of you weren't, okay? In the 90s, there was this burger that McDonald's tried to, you know, come out with that was healthy or supposedly healthy. And so they made a contractual obligation to have a certain amount of burgers sold per week, okay? They dropped the McLean Deluxe, and you know what happened? Nobody wanted them. They were disgusting. They were horrible. And so they tried to give them away to like a food shelter, and the food shelter wouldn't even take it. They said, we're not going to do it. Um, apparently, it had too much sodium in it and zero fat. So there you go. Listen, can, contracts can make weird things happen, right? When you have a contractual deal or an obligation, sometimes it leads us to do some kind of weird things. And here's the deal. Sometimes we look at our relationship with God. We look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the same way as we do a contract, or sometimes we look at it and we start to think that there's all these kind of rules and regulations and things to break or to not break. And then what happens is before we know it, we start living life like we're religious and we stop living life like we're in a relationship with God. What I'm going to talk about today as we get into Romans 7 is this distinction between religion and relationship. See, Christianity is not a religion. It's about a relationship with God. Now, some of you are like, did I just wake up in 2005? Are we doing this thing again? You remember this trend. Listen, people, we need it again. And here's the reason. A lot of us keep falling into religious tendencies. It comes from a good place, I'm sure. But for a lot of us, it's almost easier to treat it like a religion than it is to treat it like a relationship. We think a religion might be more predictable. 
We think a religion might be more controllable because it has a series of inputs and predictable outputs, but that's not how a relationship works. It's not how our relationship with God works. There's a couple signs that you might be unintentionally treating your relationship with God like a religion, okay? Here's some that I find myself sometimes slipping into. Here we go. Number one, when something bad happens in your life, you think it's because you did something wrong. That's a religious mindset. You think, oh, I, I messed up, so God is, God is now punishing me with this thing in my life. The inverse is true. Number two, we think that if we do enough good things, bad things will never happen. That's not Christianity, that's karma. Here's another one. We try to manage our behavior before we deal with the underlying affections. We try to just do the right thing and, and make the right habit or, do, or you know, force ourselves into the right box but we're not actually understanding the reason why, the heart behind why we do what we do. Number four, this one seems to be on the rise. We think we can manifest anything at all. That's not Christianity, that's new age spiritualism. We don't manifest things, God manifests things. God's the creator, God. God is the one in control of what happens in this world. We think that we can do whatever we want because God's just gonna forgive us anyway. That's licentiousness. That creeps into our relationship with God. Oh, I, know, I know he's gonna forgive me for this, so maybe it's okay just this, this one time. That's a religious mindset. That's not a relational mindset. Some of us think that our religions or our, our rituals, our traditions are enough to keep us connected with God. If I just show up to church 1.6 times a month, <clears throat> if I just pray enough, times a day, if I open that Bible plan and get the streaks, you know what I'm saying? If I just do enough of the things, I'm going to be connected with God. But then we miss out on having a personal relationship with God. That's religion. That's religion. Last one. We start to believe false teachings like God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. That's not biblical. But these things sneak their way into our mindset and they sneak our way into the way that we, re, re, you know, we interact with God. And so what's, what I, what I want to say is a lot of that, I think, comes from a good place. I know for myself, when I first became a Christian, I, I prayed the prayer every time somebody said to pray the prayer. I was like, I got to know I'm good, right? And so like, if you have been a sinner and you need to raise your hand right now, I, I, my hand was up every time because I wanted to make sure I was good. But that's, that's religion, right? That's just like doing the thing over and over again to try to make sure you're good. Some of us, we, we look to these things as ways of knowing that we're on the right track. We use them maybe as a litmus test of whether or not this God thing is real. But the problem is, is that these things will never suffice. They will never replace a real relationship with God. They can't, they won't, and they don't work. They don't work. And, and this problem that we sometimes find ourselves falling into, we sometimes find ourselves doing, is the same kind of problem that was going on in the first century. You know, when Paul was writing this book, he's writing to a group of probably like Jewish believers. There were probably some Gentiles, some non-Jewish people mixed in there. And he's writing to them saying, hey, look, I, I know that you think it's going to be by following the ABC one, two, three, but that's not what it's about. That's not how it works anymore. You're dead to some stuff. You're dead to your sin. You're dead to your old self, and you're also dead to the law. Dead to the law. What could that mean? He's saying you're dead to religion. 
You're dead to the series of inputs and outputs that you think can control your life or get God to do what you want him to do or to get you to feel okay. That's not the way we were designed to live. God designed us for relationship. God designed us for relationship with him and a relationship with him that is thriving, that is deep, that is sustaining. And that is exactly what we're gonna see in the text today. Paul says, hey, look at, look at this. He says, look, they're not just dead to sin. You're not just dead to that. You're also dead to your old self and you're dead to the law. And so we need to know this, that God doesn't just want something from you. He wants something for you. God has something he wants for you. And what he wants for you is a relationship with him. That means it's interactive. It's not just like a cosmic vending machine where we bring our issues to him. He wants to interact with us. He wants a relationship with us. And so what he did is he helped you to die to religion. But some of us unintentionally put those things back on. And so what I want to do is we're going to read through the text and I want you guys to see this theme that goes through it. And here's what it says in Romans 7, verse 1. It says, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So he's talking to a Jewish audience. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released to the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law until she marries another man. She is not an adulteress. This was a common Jewish law that they knew and that they were referring to. Likewise, my brothers... You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. Let's pray and we'll get into the text. God, we love you. We thank you that you designed us for a relationship and you desire a relationship with us. Help, help us today to shed off some of these mindsets that creep in and these mentalities that creep in that, that make us more religious than relational with you, God. Help us to see the free gift that we have in you in this new way of the Spirit. We love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Everybody said, amen. So Paul opens with this next analogy, right? He's already hit us with two. You're dead to self, you're dead to your sin, and now you're dead to the law. You're dead to the law. He gives this example that pretty much everybody he was writing to would have understood. They all were familiar with this law. They were familiar with how it worked. And so he says, listen, if you know how this works, what has happened with you and Jesus is the exact same thing, the exact same way. If you're dead, the law doesn't hold to you. Wouldn't it be nice if American tax law followed the same? <laughs> Sorry, too soon, April. It's been painful for me. Okay. 
There's a lot we can learn from the law of God, people, (laughs) okay? He says, look, if you're dead to the law, the law has no weight on you, no bearing on you. And then he gives this example. The way that Paul illustrates it is with this example of somebody who was married, who knows that they were bound by law and that it was legal for them to remarry or to be with somebody else if their spouse had died. But if their spouse hadn't died, then it wasn't legal. It was considered sin. And so this was the standard in the law. This was how it worked. Now, some of you might even be reading this and maybe it makes you a little uncomfortable because you're like, oh no, does this mean like I'm messing up or I'm in sin or I'm violating God's law? And what I want you to hear is God's law is a very big, big topic in the Bible. It's huge. And we have to really understand how it works to know how we apply it to our lives and, and what it means for us as New Testament, New Covenant believers. Because the law matters. The law is a gift to us. God gave us the law to protect us and to provide for us. But how how does it work? And so here's what we're going to do. You guys ready for this? I'm going to give you $60,000 and four years at Bible college in three minutes. Okay, here we go. Here we go. You're going to get like all the things you need to know about the Old Testament, the law and how it works. And you can thank me later um, by sending a kid to camp. Okay. I just slid that in there, man. I wasn't, I wasn't even, I wasn't even planning on that. All right. There's three big types of law. There's civil law, there's ceremonial law, and there's moral law. And God's law is broken up into some of those categories. Now, when you read the Bible, the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament is called the Torah. It is also referred to as the law or the book of the law. In those five books, we get God's law. And you know how many laws there were? 613. I counted. No, I didn't. Somebody else counted. And then I had it (laughs) corroborated. There are 613 laws. How many of you know all 613 laws? Nobody? That's okay. That's weird. Because I don't either. Um, There's 613 of them. How do you know you're not breaking one at any given time? There are so many laws. And then there's the big 10, which a lot of us are familiar with. There's the 10 commandments. And we're like, okay, those we can kind of remember or kind of handle because they seem to make sense. But then you start reading through the law and you see stuff like no shellfish. And you're like, but I was going to McCoonies today after church. Like what? And then you see stuff about tattoos and you're like, don't some of our pastors have those? And then you keep reading on and, and you see some other weird stuff like don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, who would do that? That sounds really wrong. There's, there's some weird stuff in there, admittedly. I know, but you don't see people walking around only wearing clothes made from one material anymore in the Christian tradition. People who are, who are still Orthodox Jews or Hasidic Judaism, they do that. They still try to apply all 613 to everything that they do. And then they had more. They have commentary on the laws, like the Midrash, and they use that to have even more things they have to do. I don't know how you could keep track of all of that. There's 613 laws. They fall into these categories. There were civil laws. And they were like, here's how you're supposed to operate as a nation and as a country. There were rules in ceremonial laws, which were like, hey, if you you sin in this way, here's what the sacrifice needs to look like. Here's how the sacrifice needs to be performed. You're going to break two clay pots, kill three pigeons, and you're good. And then there was moral law which was, hey, this is just categorically evil and categorically wrong. Never do this. But one of the critiques that people have of Christianity is they'll point to Christians and be like, oh, you just pick and choose which laws you want to keep and which ones you don't. That is not true. 
It's not how it works. We know that the law is broken up into these spaces. We know that a lot of the civil laws don't apply to us, okay? Now, some of those civil laws are a gift to us because they show us God's heart. God cares about the marginalized and the oppressed. There are some beautiful laws in the Old Testament. Uh, If you want to deep dive, look up the gleaning laws, okay? The gleaning laws. What would happen is they would leave the edges of their harvest. They would leave the edges so that people who had no food and had no means could come through and collect food and be taken care of. God built into the law taking care of the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. He also cared about those who were who probably deserved to die. If somebody had committed manslaughter, there were things called cities of refuge where if you had committed a crime like that, you could go there and be safe until you were able to go through what you needed to go through with the trial and with the law. It was a city that was safe for you. So if you were afraid that someone was gonna gang up or someone was gonna kill you, you could go there and you would be protected because God, his heart was to provide and to protect. We see that in his law. He cared about the people who were far from him. There's beauty in the law. There's also stuff that's kind of confusing. But what's beautiful about the ceremonial laws, as specific as they are and as complicated as they are, is so many of them foreshadow what Jesus was going to do. There's this one law, it was for the Day of Atonement, where one day a year, they would bring this unblemished lamb, this pure, spotless lamb, and they would sacrifice it for all the sins of the nation. What does that sound like to you? It's Jesus. Jesus is the unblemished lamb who sacrificed for the sins of the world. It was a foreshadowing of what God was going to do. His heart was embedded in the law. And then there are these moral laws. And these are ones that people are like, they really enjoy fighting over right now and trying to say which ones hold and which ones don't. And here's what I want you to know about those. In the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows up and he does the unthinkable. He takes the law and he says, you see, you see what is in the law? You know, like if you've heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you you get the law. Here's what I want you to hear. If somebody smacks you, you let them hit you again. If somebody tells you to walk a mile with them, go with them too. What Jesus did, he took the moral standard of the law and he elevated it. He didn't come through and be like, oh, we don't have to do that stuff anymore, guys. He took it and said, no, perfection is the standard. Even the law is a starting point, but perfection is the standard. He says, be holy as I am holy. And then we read that and we're like, rut row. Because we, I don't know about you, but I'm not holy as Jesus is holy. And so what it did is it took this bar and it said it's so high so that the gospel would be the only way to be right with God. We would see that that it's not going to be from a checklist. It's not going to be from doing everything right. It's only going to be because Jesus paid the price for you not meeting the standard of perfection. That's one of the beautiful things of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, this is what it looks like to really be a kingdom person. But it's a heavy weight, which is why Jesus says, come with me because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Come with me. And then there's multiple times in the New Testament where certain commands, certain moral laws that are in the Old Testament are repeated. If you want to, if you want to dive into this, it's called exegesis. Again, that's your, that's, you're earning your education right now, people. Okay. Exegesis, it means to draw out the meaning of the text. And so when you do good exegesis, one of the things you'll find is Paul has some very consistent lists that he makes. 
He says, this sin, this sin, this sin, this sin. He, he rattles off a list and he does it multiple times throughout the New Testament. That's done in other authors as well, where there are things that are listed again and anything that is restated in the new is a recapitulation of what was in the old. And so there are things that are pure moral standards that have carried through in this new covenant. But we have to do some good exegesis to understand what they are. And when they fall within certain categories, no matter what our culture says about them, they fall under the standard of God's morality. And so that is part of the gift of moral law. And so when it comes to the law, when it comes to being dead to the law, the most important thing that we could do when it comes to trying to apply the law to our life is exactly what Jesus said when he was confronted about the law. You know, the Pharisees were trying to trick him one day. They were trying to get him killed. And so they said, hey, uh, hey, rabbi, what's the most important law? Jesus is like, come on, guys, there's at least 10 big ones and 613 small ones. Like, are you... You're really going to ask me this on the spot, but here you go, boom. And he hits him with this. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says something beautiful, that all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you're ever worried about violating God's law or ever worried about sinning, you just ask yourself, does this love God? And does this love my neighbor as myself? What's the most loving thing to do? That's where that comes under. And we, and we do what is modeled by Christ and what love is. He simplified it for us. He also upped the ante. And he said, the only way you're going to be right with God is with me. That's the gift of the law. The law is a good thing. But the law is limited in what it can do. The law cannot save us. Religion can't save us. What he's saying is that you are now dead to the law. Because of what Jesus did, you're dead to it. It doesn't have any bearing on you anymore. And so now you have this new reality that you live in where you belong to another. You're not dead to the law to live this like wild and crazy life. You're dead to the law to belong to Jesus. You're his now. You belong to him. You're his. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. When I look at Addie, like our daughter, she just turned two. She's the cutest thing in the world to me and to most of you. And what she did, what she does right now is she'll stand there and she'll like put her hand on like a bench or a, a coffee table and she'll kick out a leg and say, ballet, ballet. And then she did this thing with her hand and I was like, that looks real. That, I don't know if that's real, but that looked real. And my wife did ballet. And so she's, you know, she's like, oh yeah, that's it. And so we look at her and it's like, oh, like that's my girl. You belong to me. You belong to me. When I see that in oh, like you belong to us. And then she throws a tantrum and goes, ah, is so mad that I want her to stop washing her hands. And she still belongs to me. That's still my girl. She belongs to me. Guys, that's what it means. You belong to God. That means that when you look like him, when you're doing the things that he calls you to do, he says, that's my girl. That's my son. They're mine. And when you're messing up, you're still his because you belong to him. You don't belong to a law. You don't belong to rules. You don't belong to regulations. You belong to God. That's the gift of the gospel is you have a new person that you belong to. He says, you belong to another so that you would bear fruit for God. 
One of my favorite analogies for bearing fruit, because you, you guys heard of bear fruit. Maybe if you've been around the church world, people are like, oh yeah, we just got to see what the fruit is from it. Or they're like, oh yeah, you know, are they bearing fruit? We should probably see what the fruit is of that. And you're like, okay, you said fruit too many times. What are you really actually talking about? Okay, fruit what? Okay, here, here's my favorite way to think of it is this. When you think about bearing fruit, I got this from the pastor I grew up under. Pastor Jeremy, I love you if you're watching. Okay, he, he said... Have you ever driven by an orchard and heard trees grunting? <laughs> you haven't? Sorry. Okay, no, because because trees don't sit there and like try to make fruit happen. They're not out there just like, boop, and then it pops out. That's not how it works. <laughs> Sorry. Fruit comes from the tree being rooted Right? It's taking in nutrients from the soil, water, sun, everything. It's all these processes that make it happen. And then fruit comes from those trees. It's not as a result of striving. It's not because they're pushing to make something happen. The tree bears fruit because it's a tree and it's in the soil. Okay? So you are designed to bear fruit. You're already bearing fruit. You're, you're producing something. You, there's an output to your life. There's output in your life. Now, what is that output for? What is that output achieving? This is what Paul's trying to say. Here's, here's what the fruit looks like of, of bearing fruit for God. If you want, you can go to Galatians 5 sometime, 22 through 23. Here's what fruit is. Joy, love, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what Paul says. He says, look, these are them. These are the fruit of the Spirit. This is what comes from bearing fruit for God. And he says this incredible line. He says this. These are the fruit of the Spirit against which there is no law. There is no law against these things. He's saying, look, this is what you're called to produce in your life. This is what comes from belonging to God. And there's no law against it. Use it as a diagnostic. Are you seeing more joy in your life? Are you seeing more peace in your life? Are you seeing more self-control in your life? What are you seeing? Are you seeing the fruit of belonging to another? Or is there a different kind of fruit in your life? Here's what it says in, in the next verse. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused at the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Here's what he's saying. The law, the standard, the 613 commandments, all it did was make us want to do more bad. It, 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 for some reason, it worked the opposite way, and, and it produced fruit for death. And part of that is because people, when we aren't redeemed, when our soul hasn't been given to God, what we produce, it's not the same kind of fruit that we produce with Jesus. Here's what I mean. Many of you have gifts and talents, character traits that God has given you. They're a gift to you. They are a reflection of his divine image. God has wired each of you with some unique capability that produces. Some of you are producing a service, some a product, some sales, some you're marketing something, some you're, you're producing Good in your, in your neighborhood. Some of you, you're producing something for someone else. And the fruit of that, of what you produce, I'm here to tell you that it's temporary. I'm here to tell you that no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you produce, 
It's just money. It's just a house. It's just a boat. It's just a policy. It's just a product. It's just a service. And they all have an expiration date. What we are producing, it's death. It's temporary. It's fleeting. But what's offered in the gospel is a redemptive approach to your life where what you produce isn't just death. What you produce is life. What you produce is fruit for God that God uses for kingdom purposes. We see this all the time. We see it all the time. When someone comes to faith, and like we, we've got a guy from our church a while ago, he was in a biker gang, okay, and, and did all the biker gang things. And then he came to faith and then made a Jesus biker gang. He took the gifts he had of rallying guys and getting together and going on rides. And he said, I'm going to just, I'm going to use this gift God's given me of being winsome. I'm going to just use it for God. Because what's it for? What, what does it matter if you put the ball through the hoop? How can you use that for God? Because what's beautiful about what God does is he redeems those things that are beautiful in you. He created in you that are reflections of his divine spark. That's what it means to bear fruit for God versus bearing fruit for death. The fruit that we bore, it, it has a timestamp. The fruit that we bear, it's limited. It, sometimes it's sin. But the fruit that we bear for God has an eternal dividend. What if the gifts that you had were used in that way? What if the way you were wired was used in that way? What would that mean for the way that you see yourself? What would that mean for the joy that you feel or the peace that you feel or the faithfulness that you exhibit? Like, how would that grow and how would that change? That's the power of the gospel at work on a practical level is it radically alters the way that you see those things. And so Paul tries to get them to understand this. He's saying, look, we, we, some of us are bearing fruit for death. Some of us are bearing fruit in these ways. And so now here's the deal. Because you belong to another, because you're dead to the law, you are now freed to live in the new way of the spirit. You're released from the law to a new way of living that's different from the written code, meaning there's a freedom that you have. What does that freedom look like? You know, one of our, one of our teaching team members was, was uh, sharing that, uh, have you guys ever heard of like those word per minute tests? You know what I mean? Like when they're in school with kids, they go in and they, they try to figure out how many words per minute they're motivated to read or they're engaged with or they can retain, they can remember. They do these tests. Now, here's what they found in multiple studies. Okay, so there's a study from University of Connecticut. There's a study from uh, Reading Research Quarterly. There's another one from the Journal of Reading Education. All three of these studies found very similar findings. Okay, what they did is they took a group of kids and they had to do a reading test to a timer. They had to do a reading test. Some of them, they had, they had a buzzer that would go off when they hit the time limit. Some would see a flashing red light when they hit the time limit. And some kids in these tests, they, they would do them with no time limit, no buzzer, no flashing light. The kids who had the restriction of time or the restriction of the flashing light or the button or the buzzer, those kids read less words on average, they were less motivated on average, they were less engaged on average, and they retained less of their information than the kids who read without a timer, without a buzzer, and without a flashing red light. Why is that? Why is it that those restrictions, when they were removed, people suddenly were free, and they read faster, and they understood more? How, did that, how does that work? There's something about us that we're designed to do. 
This is the same concept of the new free way of the spirit. What God did is he said, okay, the law, it's good. It was to protect, it was to provide, but the law is limited. It was to tell you that you need a savior. If you get that, then you live with this kind of freedom. That kind of freedom looks like more joy, more peace, more kindness. That kind of freedom means you're free to run. You're free to run with Jesus unhindered. That's what Paul's getting at. He's trying to help people to see that this new way of life that's available in the gospel is so different. It's so different than the way that we want to live today. It's so different than the things that we find ourselves in because you're dead to sin, you're dead to the law, you're dead to the old self. And the reason why is so that you would bear fruit. So the result would be good. You're not under contractual obligation to hit a certain per capita as a Christian. You're not even gonna sit down and get rated on your tree. You're not gonna be like, okay, well, there's a little bit too too few patience fruits and a little bit too many self-control fruits. Like we gotta adjust that next quarter. That's not how it works. You see, that's the fruit that God wants to produce in us. This is the implications from the text today is this. Very simple. We're dead to the law. We're dead. We died to it, which means we're dead to religion. We're dead to the way that we want to live where we think it's going to be input and output. And I'm here to tell you, you may, you may be living a religious lifestyle that isn't even a Christian lifestyle that's religious. You could be religious in the fact that you worship money. Money could be what your religion is. We're saying, I need to hit a certain number. I need to hit this so that I'm good and I can collect my interest and I can retire early or whatever. You might be living for that God and that religion. And there's a list of things that you do in that religion to be accepted by that in-group. And then you live according to that. That is enslavement. You're a slave to that. If that's what you worship, you might be a slave to success. You might be a slave to what you feel like you need to achieve to be okay with yourself by the time that you're 45, 55, 65, 75. You might be living as a slave to that. You might be more religious than you know. But what Jesus came to do is to help us to die to religion, to die to the law, to die to those things that we worship so that we would belong to Jesus, to have a relationship with him. And a relationship is dynamic. It's not a one-way street. We're not just asking God for things and and God's not just telling us what to do. It's us interacting with this being who created you and knows you and loves you more deeply than you can ever imagine. That's what's offered to us in a relationship with Jesus. And so what we do is we live by this new way of the spirit. We live by a new way, which is freeing. It's freeing. It's not, it doesn't have the same weight You're not sitting there trying to hit the right thing. You know that it's been hit by Jesus. And so you're freed up to follow him. You're free to follow him. So here's what I want you guys to know. God wants something for you more than he wants something from you. He wants something for you more than he wants something from you. If you you came here today and you were maybe living with a religious mindset, I want to just paint a picture. Here's here's the difference. Religion is, is unquestioned tradition. You just do the things people say to do and you follow the thing. A relationship says it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have questions. That's a relationship. God's not afraid of your questions. A religion says you messed up. Now you go pay for it. A relationship says you messed up. I forgive you. I forgive you. That's a relationship. A religion says shame on you. A relationship says I forgive you. 
Jesus wants a relationship with you where he can say that to you. He says, I forgive you. Religion says, you're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. But a relationship says, Jesus was good enough for you. Now run, run with him, run to him. He's got you, he's there for you. And he's running to you from the porch, like the father. Guys, this is what's offered to us in Jesus. This is what we have. And you guys, some of us here need, need to know that God wants a personal relationship with you. Some of us need to remember that you have a relationship with God. And some of you just need to be encouraged to keep going, like keep pressing into that relationship because that's where more joy, more peace, more goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, that's where it's gonna be found. More faithfulness is found in Him. We live in a divided world, but just like the Romans, we are called to unity in Christ as we live on mission in our daily lives. Let this message be an encouragement to you as you go into the spaces and places that God takes you this week. Until next time.